I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the book of 1 Peter. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Well, let's begin with our introduction to 1 Peter. The Christians here are under a great deal of persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. This epistle was written by Peter to the dispersed Christians around 62 to 64 AD, and it was to provide them with a doctrinal foundation. The place names provided in verse 1 are located in today's Turkey. Peter's readers to this epistle were predominantly of Gentile rather than Jewish background, we see in chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. If you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, there's a nice map which will give you some perspective of where these places are. We begin with born again, the position of every believer. Now that's security, and that's what Peter addresses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter uses the word pilgrims to describe the recipients of his letter here. The Greek word he uses there is translated pilgrims again in chapter 2, verse 11. Peter probably means to use this word to identify their permanent residence as heavenly rather than earthly. The same Greek word translated pilgrims is also used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, and there it's used to identify those people of faith in the context that their permanent home was really heaven when it says they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That idea fits nicely with verses 2 through 5. Peter clearly establishes heaven as the end result of our salvation experience in Jesus Christ. Verse 5 is particularly useful as we read for those who have trouble accepting the fact that our salvation is eternal. That verse says this, "...who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time." The great news here is that I'm not responsible for keeping my own salvation secure. God's responsible, and He's omnipotent. It's a very secure feeling to be kept by the power of God. So here we are, 30 years or so after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and that's when the church in Jerusalem was established. You'll notice in these verses that Peter states as a fact the scriptural principle of the security of the believer in these verses without going into a great detailed explanation. He packs a lot into these verses. Notice the terms that he uses to establish the security of the believer's salvation. In verse 2, he uses the Greek word eklektos, which means elect, 
It's used 23 times in the New Testament and always translated elect or chosen. Then he speaks of the foreknowledge of God in verse 2. The Greek word there is prognosis. It's used in the New Testament only here and in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, concerning the foreknowledge that God had concerning the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Then Peter references in sanctification of the Spirit in verse 2. That Greek word is hagiosmos. It's used ten times in the New Testament and also translated holiness. The verb equivalent of this noun is hagiadzo, and it means to set apart or dedicate. Incidentally, the Greek adjective form of that root is hagias, and that's translated holy, or when it's used as a noun, it's often translated saints. In other words, a believer is set apart for an eternity in heaven as a saint of God, and in that respect, all Christians are holy. Then he mentions in verse 2, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The sprinkling of blood was a common Old Testament term used nearly 100 times to describe the process whereby sacred things were dedicated in the Old Testament. The term is used only six times in the New Testament, here and five times in the book of Hebrews, where it's used in Hebrews chapter 12, 24 to describe the process whereby believers are sanctified under the new covenant. If those terms in verse 2, the elect and the foreknowledge, if those two terms are confusing, then look at my notes on Romans chapter 9 regarding the usage of those terms in the New Testament. So with these terms in mind, let's view verse 2 with a new appreciation of why our salvation is so secure in Jesus Christ. For someone to read verse 2 and still maintain that it's possible to lose one's salvation, well, that's really just disregarding the plainly stated conditions of salvation. The multiplication of grace and peace in verse 2 is a frequent expression in the New Testament as part of their mutual greetings to one another. In verses 3 and 4, Peter expresses a thankfulness to God for the living hope that we now have as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of his resurrection, we can look forward to our own resurrection. Verse 4 clearly describes the conditions of that resurrection as being in heaven where we will be incorruptible and undefiled. Peter caps off these assurance guarantees in verse 5 when he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice that God does the keeping by his own power in that verse, not our own power. Just to be safe, let's plainly state the obvious. Our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. But then in verses 6 through 9, Peter talks about trial. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory." receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, these various trials that he talks about probably refer to the persecution under Nero of believers. The Greek word used there for trials is perosmos. I've written an article entitled Trial, Testing, and Temptation. It's on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, or you can find it under the topic section on the front page of BibleTrack.org. 
Read that article if you'd like to know more about the precise meaning of the word that's used there in Greek. Hard times, by the way, build our faith. In verse 7, Peter uses the Greek verb and noun dokimazo and dokimaon. That's from the same root word, and by the way, that's where he draws a comparison between trial and a Christian's life to the fire that's used to make gold pure. The fire separates the impurities from the gold, and that's what trial does for believers. To put it simply, Peter's normalizing the presence of trial as a process of victorious Christian living. Notice the rejoicing that accompanies this trial in verse 8, as we look forward to the completion of our salvation experience, or, as it stated, the salvation of your souls in verse 9, being the final redemption to heaven itself. Now, if you want to know more about those Greek words used, then again, look at that article that I was referencing earlier. Let's recognize those Old Testament prophets in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Well, Peter vindicates those Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah. He was one who prophesied about the coming Messiah. Of particular note here is Peter's reference to salvation in verses 1 through 5. This salvation by grace as a condition of the heart is exactly what was prophesied as a component of the new covenant. That's in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. While all the conditions of the new covenant had not been realized at the time of the writing of this epistle, salvation by grace, that component of the covenant actually had. Look at the notes regarding Hebrews chapter 8, and you'll see there the provisions of the new covenant as they were fulfilled after Jesus Christ. He further mentions in verse 11 that those prophets testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. We see Isaiah's prophecy concerning the suffering of Christ in Isaiah chapter 53, and the glory in Isaiah chapter 11 and chapter 65. Verse 12 then says that what they previewed we are realizing. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 25, we see Peter's admonition, You belong to God, now act like it. Verse 13. Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Well, there's a metaphor in verse 13 when it says, Gird up the loins of your mind. Men wore long robes, but when they had a task requiring increased mobility, they tucked their robes in at their belts, an action referred to as girding up one's loins. While this was done for work, athletics, traveling, and warfare, and so forth, based upon Peter's reference to the Passover lamb in verse 19, he may have had in view here Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, where that says, And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In any case, the message is clear. Stay alert in anticipation for the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a reference to the rapture of believers in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. The usage of the word hope in verse 13 comes from the Greek word elpidzo, which literally means confident expectation. Since you've been saved in Christ, act like it, verse 14. Here's a clear call for believers to live out their righteousness before the world. I particularly find verses 15 and 16 meaningful. Those two verses say, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The Greek word anastrophe there means lifestyle for conduct. Then the verse continues, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45 here. These words are found again in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. These verses are talking about lifestyle after salvation, strengthened by the fact that Leviticus 11 and 19 are also dealing with lifestyle. Let's take a look at three Greek words with the same root. The first is hagiosmos, used ten times in the New Testament, and it's translated holiness or sanctification. The verb equivalent of this noun is hagiadzo and means to set apart or dedicate. The Greek adjective form of that root is hagias, which is translated holy, or when it's used as a noun, it's often translated saints. In other words, a believer is set apart for an eternity in heaven as a saint of God, and in that respect, all Christians are holy. Peter uses the adjective holy, the Greek word hagias means set apart, he uses it four times in two verses here to indicate a believer's responsibility to set a Christ-like example before the world. Since believers are set apart in Christ, we should act like it under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. Let the world see your life in Christ. Or perhaps I should say, let the world see Christ in your manner of living. Verse 17 sets up the rest of the chapter. It says, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now notice the if clause. If you call on the Father, followed by the then clause, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. The usage of the word parochia for stay here holds the connotation that believers are strangers in this world, the very same thought conveyed with his usage of strangers in verse 1. 
Believers are just passing through this world. As such, the fear, verse 17, it's the Greek word phobos, projects that our attitude be mindful of the seriousness of this situation as aliens in a Christ-rejecting world. Now Peter lists the supporting arguments for his exhortation of verse 17 by first of all explaining what's different about us. It's our spiritual redemption. Notice in verse 18 that our redemption is not earthly in nature, but spiritual, as in verse 19 that says, "...but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot." It's not clear whether Peter refers to paganism or Judaism in verse 18. That's when he refers to those traditions as being aimless. Whatever, they don't measure up to Christ's sacrifice of his own blood. Why is that? Because he was foreordained before the foundation of the world to make that sacrifice, we see in verse 20. And because God raised him up from the dead and gave him glory in verse 21. As a result, our faith and hope is in God. Since our faith and hope is in God, verse 21, the believer's soul is purified. That's what we see in verse 22. Then comes a command. It's a Greek imperative verb there. It's love one another. Remember that Jesus himself identified this as a vital aspect of being a disciple of Christ in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. On the eve of his crucifixion, he said this in those two verses, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Verses 23 through 25 here emphasize the eternal permanence of the word of God by which we experience regeneration in Christ. Peter makes certain that his readers understand the permanence of the word of God which lives and abides forever. When he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, he does so in verse 24. Here's what he says in verse 24, "...because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away." He follows this quotation with his statement of verse 25. Here's what he says, "...but the word of the Lord endures forever." Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. In so doing, he applies the weight of the Old Testament prophecy to the context of his epistle, his letter here. When we talk about the mechanics of salvation, 1 Peter 1.23 is particularly exact here. Here's what it says, "...having been born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever." Salvation is described as a born-again experience here. Jesus himself describes salvation similarly to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now, here's why that's important. Salvation is not a feeling or just an experience. It's a relationship that involves a transformation. Notice what Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He says, "...for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body." where the Jews are Greeks, where the slaves are free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Literally, the born-again experience involves being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We sometimes refer to our salvation as the new birth for that reason. The analogy there is important to note as well. We saw that we are kept by the power of God in 1 Peter chapter 1.5, The reason that's so is because we have been spiritually born into God's family, just like physically people are born into their families on earth. 
You can't undo a physical birth, nor can you undo a spiritual birth. Salvation is not just an experience or a feeling. It's a permanent relationship with God as a result of having been born again, just like both Christ and Peter have indicated. 1 Peter chapter 2 asks this question, Who are you going to follow? Verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are built up by a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Because of this supernatural relationship described with Christ in the preceding chapter, here are the instructions for conducting one's Christian life. First of all, the love one another admonition of chapter 1 verse 22 is reinforced here with a little mini list in verse 1. That verse says, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. You'll notice that all of those are relationship issues. Peter uses a couple of metaphors here to illustrate the believer's allegiance to Christ. The first metaphor for these believers is to desire the milk of the word as newborn believers. Verse 3 is an obvious reference to Psalm 34, 8. It says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. The next is the familiar stone metaphor. Peter quotes first from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. He does so here in verse 6 of chapter 2. Then he quotes Psalm 118.22 in verse 7. And finally, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, he quotes in verse 8. In other words, Christ is the stone prophesied in the Old Testament, and as believers, we are the living stones from him. This cornerstone teaching from the Old Testament was actually used by Jesus himself in a parable to the Jewish leaders regarding his imminent crucifixion in Matthew 21, also paralleled in Mark 12 and Luke 20. Later in the New Testament, we see then Jesus as the cornerstone in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, and again in Romans chapter 9, verse 33, as well as here in 1 Peter chapter 2. All of the New Testament usages are based upon these Old Testament scriptures. So to summarize, Jesus is the living stone in verse 4, the cornerstone in verse 6, the rejected stone in verse 7, and finally the stumbling stone in verse 8. And, but wait, there's more. Believers are the living stones in verse 5, a chip off the old block, you might say. 
That being the case, verse 5 says exactly that. But wait, there's still more. We are also our own priests. We don't need to run to a priest for intercession. Just look at verses 9 and 10. That's what those two verses say. So here's the New Testament hierarchy for believers. Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's in Hebrews chapter 7, detailed there. And then we are our own priest. We see in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, that says, But you are a chosen generation of royal priesthood. Revelation 1, 6 also adds to that by saying, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 2.5 also says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus eliminated the middleman with his sacrificial death on the cross. It's actually inappropriate for a believer to depend on another man to absolve sin or to mediate. Jesus and Jesus alone does this for all believers. So there it is. Believers are priests of God. As a matter of fact, believers are much more than priests according to verse 9. It says that we as believers are a chosen generation. The Greek word there for generation is genos, which means race or kind. Believers are related spiritually is what's meant there. We're also a royal priesthood under the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, of course. Then we're a holy nation. The Greek for holy there is hagios, means set apart. Believers constitute a nation of people set apart for God. And then we find that we are his own special people. As believers, we are God's own possession. Then comes the responsibility. We saw those relational attitudes to be avoided in verse 1. Here are the attitudes to be pursued by believers in verses 9 through 12. First of all, proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Secondly, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And thirdly, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. A couple of points should be noted here. First of all, Peter is encouraging Gentile believers to live a positive testimony. The readers are identified as Gentiles in verse 10, who once were not a people, it says. An elaboration of verse 12 on having conduct honorable among the Gentiles is seen in the following verses regarding submission to authority. We'll see those in a moment in verses 13 through 17. Incidentally, Peter obviously borrowed some of this terminology to describe the New Testament believer's position before God from a previous description of the Hebrews found in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Let me read those two verses to you from Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, we have an admonition on submitting to authority. Verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak of vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, the tendency would have been to refuse obedience to an oppressive government like the Roman Empire under Nero, of course. 
The lesson of Scripture is, as much as possible, to comply with the laws of our government's leaders. Sometimes there's a clash, like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, or even Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 6. However, compliance with one's government, short of direct violation of scriptural principle, well, that's a mandate of Scripture. Paul dealt with this issue of government authority rather comprehensively in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Peter makes an interesting Daniel-type distinction here in verse 16. He says, "...as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God." That term, cloak for vice, literally means using one's religion in a self-serving, not God-honoring way. In other words, don't resist the government by invoking Christian principle when there is not really any Christian principle involved there. Then we have a word to servants in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. While the direct application of Scripture here is to servants and slaves, the concept reaches beyond them to all of us. If you're curious about the practice of slavery in the first century A.D. in the Roman world there, then look at my notes on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. There's a link here on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, and I give you the details of how slavery was practiced during that era. Christ was sinless, and yet he suffered, suffered without complaint. Suffering, by the way, is a part of Christian living. Suffer graciously. Don't jeopardize your testimony in the process. Peter draws heavily from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 in this passage, but perhaps the most significant of these quotes is found in verse 24, when Peter quotes and says, "...who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." Now that's taken from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where it was prophesied that the Messiah would suffer for our sin burden. A very significant comparison is seen here in verse 20. When one does wrongly, he expects to experience suffering for that wrongdoing. However, when one does well and still suffers, well, this is the time when one's Christian character is really being tested. The comparison here is that Jesus himself suffered for wrongdoing even though he had done no wrong. Jesus there is our example. I hesitate to make an issue of the rendering that many modern translations have given to verse 25, but I guess I'll do it anyway. The Greek verb for return there is epistrepho. That Greek word means to turn back. However, the verb is unquestionably in the passive voice here, making the subject receiving the action. That's what passive voice means. Receiving the action rather than implementing the action. So, simply put, those sheep going astray received shepherding. 
In that verse, we see a couple of Greek words. The one Greek word is the word for shepherd, which is poimen, and the other was overseer or oversight, which is the Greek word episkopos. Uh, both of those are the ones doing the shepherding, which caused them to return. Though slight, there is a difference between turning oneself as opposed to being led by Jesus to turn, Jesus being the shepherd and bishop of our souls. In chapter 3, Peter takes on the issue of husbands and wives. Who's in charge? Verses 1 through 7, first beginning with chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God." For in this matter, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered." When I hear some self-explanatory verses on the husband-wife relationship, not very politically correct by today's standards, I might add, but scriptural nonetheless. Notice the admonition to the wife of the husband who's not living by scriptural principles. We see that in verses 1 and 2. A godly Christian example serves to influence him to obedience to God also. A modest appearance is encouraged in verses 3 and 4 on behalf of women. These two verses are intended to differentiate between the appearance of ungodly women as opposed to Christian women. Peter clearly establishes the marriage chain of command in verses 5 and 6. He makes reference to Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, where Sarah called Abraham Lord there. The Greek word for Lord in verse 6 is kurios, which means master, as does its Hebrew counterpart, Adon, which is used in Genesis 18, verse 12. There's no question Peter is teaching that the husband is the head of the home here. As I said, it's not very politically correct by today's standards. It's just scriptural by biblical standards. The admonition to husbands is contained in verse 7. Place a value on your wife and serve the Lord with her as a fellow heir. The phrase that your prayers may not be hindered at the end of the verse packs a punch. Peter's indicating the, that a failure to honor one's wife in other words, to place a value upon one's wife, that failure will hinder one's relationship with God. The Apostle Paul dealt with this subject of husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. How well do you suffer? That's the subject of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. Verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake and are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that, when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed." For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water." There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Times were tough for believers when this was written during the reign of Nero. He hated Christians. The lesson here is to give the gospel, even in the face of potential persecution as a result. The admonition of verses 8-11 through is for believers to be part of the solution, not be a part of the problem. You get the picture which is really summarized with the statement, Love as brothers. We love our family in the worst of circumstances, even when they display undesirable conduct. So should believers treat one another at all times. So not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling is not a challenge when you authentically love someone. Paul gives quite a bit of detail to this very same point in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4-7. through 7. Authentic love overlooks a lot of faults. Here's the promise that makes suffering bearable in verses 12-14. through 14. It's all in the Lord's hands. Peter quotes Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16 in verse 12. Believers should exercise righteous actions regardless of circumstances. And when one's good actions result in negative reactions, then verse 14 encourages, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Verse 15 is a great apologetics verse. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The Greek word for sanctify there is the verb hagiadzo. It means to set apart, as in to make special. As such, believers should always be ready to explain what Christ means to them. Of course, unless a Christian practices the good conduct that was outlined there in verses 8 through 14, well, then verse 15 may fall on deaf ears. Our positive Christian example lends credibility to our message of Christ. That's what the good conscience of verse 16 references with an emphasis made once again in verse 17 that our suffering at the hand of others needs to be because of our unwavering faith rather than our own evil doing. Now, regarding the issue of suffering, though innocent, verse 18 begins with an example of Christ's suffering as a lesson to us, but includes some rather interesting doctrinal implications. Christ's death was substitutionary in that his death, being the just one, paid for our sins, being in that verse the unjust ones. The purpose was to deliver us to God, meaning eternal life. Christ was crucified physically, but raised by the Holy Spirit of God. 
Concerning the preaching to the spirits in prison in verse 19, there are some pretty interesting supporting verses to indicate that Christ actually spent those three days between his crucifixion and resurrection in Hades, or at least next door. Uh, Look at my notes on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 for more details there. We see in verse 20 that Peter specifically mentions the disobedient during Noah's day, but there's no reason to see this as an exclusive group of non-believers. He seems to use them to make a water analogy that leads into verse 21. Finally, verse 21, it puts water baptism into perspective. Note that water baptism is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but rather the answer of a good conscience toward God. In other words, baptism is a testimony thing, not a salvation thing. If you want to know more about baptism, read Romans chapter 6, verses 1-14 through 14, and my accompanying notes to that passage. After the resurrection, Jesus assumes his place at the right hand of God. Everyone is subject to Christ as God. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the following, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Well, here's the bottom line. Jesus is incarnate God. Then we have a passage on being good stewards of God's grace in 1 Peter chapter 4, the first 11 verses. Verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. These verses encourage believers to be careful about their personal testimony before the world. It appears in verse 1 that Peter is making the same point that Paul does regarding the believer's death to sin in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. A contrast is seen between a life surrendered to Christ in verses 1 and 2 and the unregenerate lifestyle of verse 3. Now, verse 4 is an eye-opener. The world will not understand why you don't act like them. Let's face it. The world normalizes bad conduct. They seek to make the conduct of verse 3 the norm for society. Jesus is the one who will judge the living and the dead in verse 5. If you like more information regarding God's judgment, then look at my article entitled Six Judgments Found in the New Testament. It's in the topic section of BibleTrack.org, or there's a link right here in the written notes for today. Now, don't read too much into verse 6. These dead are Christians who had the gospel preached to them and then died. 
Some have sought to link this verse to 1 Peter 3:18 and 19 due to some similar wording. It does not appear that Peter is making any kind of a reference back to those verses. And there's no question the disciples of the first century believed that the return of Jesus would take place in their lifetime, and that's evidenced by Peter's statement in verse 7. It says, But the end of all things is at hand. The Greek verb for is at hand is the perfect active indicative of the Greek word engenzo. It thus means has drawn near. Paul similarly believed that the return of Christ would take place in his lifetime when he said in 1 Thessalonians 4:17, Then we who are alive and remain should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. He also uses the same we reference in verse 15 of that very same chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this has caused some to question the doctrine of the rapture and second coming of Christ. Well, here's the reality. It's imminent. It means it could happen at any time. The disciples had asked Jesus after his resurrection and just before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the following question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Since that day, they had expected the imminent return of Christ. The fact that Peter and Paul seemed to anticipate the return of Christ during their own lifetimes Well, that simply makes us realize that Jesus could appear at any time in his own time, of course. In the meantime, Peter encourages the mutual edification of believers in verses 8 through 11. All of our actions should be mutually considerate of other people. I particularly like the last part of verse 8, which says, Love will cover a multitude of sins. When you authentically love someone, you don't pick them apart for their faults. I like Proverbs 10:12 on this issue. It says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Now, I have a saying that I use a lot. Here's my saying. When people like you, you can't do anything wrong. When they don't like you, you can't do anything right. Verse 10 instructs us to not resent hospitality to brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 11 continues to emphasize that we should pass along to others the blessings that have been passed along to us from God. Verse 11 directs us to just follow the Lord's leadership as we minister. In chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, we see that believers will undergo suffering. Verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God." And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Now we're back to the overriding theme of Peter's letter, trial. Look at my article, if you haven't already, on trial, testing, and temptation under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, 
or you can click here at the link that's provided on the written notes for today for uh, an opportunity to go directly to that article. Because trial is part of Christian living. Accept trial is part of God's plan. However, Peter admonishes us to be careful not to bring hard times upon ourselves through our own bad conduct. In verse 12, Peter encourages his letter recipients to be expecting fiery testing or trial. You'll recall from the introduction that these were the days of the Roman emperor Nero. He hated Christians, and he demonstrated that fact regularly. Persecution of Christians during this period was severe. Verse 13 then follows that those under undeserved persecution should rejoice at being counted worthy to partake of sufferings just as Christ did. In verses 14 through 16, Peter is making certain that his readers understand the difference between suffering for Christ as opposed to suffering because of one's own wrongdoing. There is no honor in suffering because of one's own faults, but to suffer for the cause of Christ, now that's honorable. In verses 17 through 19, Peter sees the persecution and hardships as end-time adversity, just as the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel prior to the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. There, in that situation, righteous and unrighteous were caught up in the judgment that followed. However, the righteous suffered for God, while the unrighteous suffered because of their unrighteousness. That's the parallel that Peter seems to draw right here in this passage. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Peter addresses the elders, verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away." Well, Peter here addresses the responsibility of elders. The Greek word there is presbyteros. He does so in this closing chapter of 1 Peter. So who exactly is he talking to here? Uh, I've written an article entitled um, Elders, Bishops, and Pastors. It's uh, to put it all in perspective. You'll find it under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, or there's a link right here on this page if you're looking at the written notes. There are three words that are used in this passage, as well as Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. If you want a clear perspective of the usage of the three words, elders, bishops, and pastors, throw shepherd into that, by the way, then uh, look at my notes on Acts 20, verses 17 to 38, where all three terms are used in the passage. As a fellow elder in verse 1, Peter's exhorting, the Greek word there is parakaleo, means to encourage or console, He's exhorting those elders there. In his qualifications for doing so, he cites his presence during the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of Christ. The glory that will be revealed refers to the appearance of Jesus Christ at the rapture. Paul makes a similar reference in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, for those who want to know more, Paul gives some details regarding our future glorified bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 50. Then here is Peter's exhortation with regard to the leadership style these elders should demonstrate. He does so in verses 2 and 3. First of all, spiritually feed them as a shepherd cares for and feeds his sheep. Secondly, serving as overseers. 
The Greek word serving as overseers is the verb form of episkopos, which is episkopeo. The noun form episkopos is translated bishop. The verb means to oversee. Don't oversee a group of believers just for the money. Don't lord over them. The Greek word katakurio It's used four times in the New Testament. This Greek word is used in a negative context in every occurrence in the New Testament, and it indicates one's need to exercise power over someone else. And then finally, lead other believers by example. That's what Peter talks about when he refers to the function of the pastor, bishop, and elder. In verse 4, the appearance of the chief shepherd, well, that's a reference, of course, to Jesus at the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. Then we see in chapter 5, verses 5-14, through 14, that Satan is after us, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, sinking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, these are Christian living verses that encourage us to beware of Satan's sneaky methods of attacking us. Keep in mind, Satan cannot cause us to be lost again, but he'll work all day every day to prevent us from having a positive influence on other people. Relationships are in view here, the way we relate to other believers. The young are to hold in high esteem the experience of those who are older. Here, the Greek word presbyteros is used in the context of an older person rather than speaking specifically to the office of an elder. This word can mean either, by the way. Only context reveals the intended meaning. Humility is the key here, as seen in verses 5 and 6. One who is surrendered to God sees himself as an instrument of God's grace rather than a self-sufficient, self-motivated entity. That's emphasized in verse 7, where we see that all of our care is rightfully surrendered to Jesus. He provides the strength to prevail over the enemy. Satan is that enemy, and he's seen in verse 8. I find the metaphor of verse 8 particularly sobering. Have you ever seen the way a lion stalks his prey? Well, watch out. Satan, like the lion, looks for opportunities of weakness in believers. The lion waits until the opportunity is completely right before he pounces. So does Satan. He creates circumstances around a believer conducive to compromise, and that's in an attempt to lead a believer away from spiritual safety. When that believer is most vulnerable, that's when Satan makes his big move, just like a lion. 
Verses 9 and 10 provide for us the preventive measures which should be taken against Satan. Resist him by remaining steadfast in the faith. Adversity is the normal state of Christian living. Remaining faithful in adversity results in spiritual maturity where the believer will find that he is established, strengthened, and settled. This is actually a summary statement of the subject first introduced in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. If you look at the article entitled Trial, Testing, and Temptation, you'll get a complete overview of the adversity in believers' lives. The mention of Silvanus, a faithful brother in verse 12, is most likely a reference to Silas. Most scholars are convinced that Silvanus is Silas. That's his Latin name as a Roman citizen, they conjecture. While a few people believe that this refers to another individual altogether— Fact is, Silas did accompany Paul and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey, which began in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. He's in the company of Paul, and he's credited in three of Paul's epistles, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 19, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.